Morning, everybody. It's great to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors and part of our teaching team. And uh, before we dive in, I just want to let you know kind of what's uh, coming in the, the, the next number of weeks. So we've got a few weeks left of this series. We'll finish it December 9th. On December 16th, we've got a special treat that uh, John Benzinger, who used to be a pastoral resident here and has since been the lead pastor at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, a church that we kind of with him helped sort of restart. Uh, he's going to be here to preach that day, and so we're excited for that. And then the following week, this is just five weeks away, is crazy, we'll be celebrating Christmas. So... What did he say? Did, yeah, I said it. We're going to be celebrating Christmas. So uh, I want you to uh, kind of understand how we're going to do Christmas this year. Is um, Christmas Eve actually falls on a Monday. So what we're going to do is we're going to do five Christmas services here, five identical Christmas services, but spread out over M Sunday and Monday. So we'll do our normal service times, but it'll be a Christmas service on Sunday, uh, the 23rd. And then on Monday, the 24th, we'll do two times at 3.30 and 5 p.m. So these are all the same services. Services, but stretched out over those two days. We felt like for the sake of volunteers and everybody else, that made more sense than doing three Sunday services and five Monday services. We figured we would just uh, do it this way. So what we'd love you to begin to do is to uh, think about when would be best for you to come there, when would be best for you to be able to invite somebody, and then go to christmasatgateway.com, christmasatgateway.com. And what you can do there is tell us how many, uh, how many seats you plan to occupy and how many folks you plan to invite and that sort of thing. You just kind of RSVP for that service, which helps us prepare from a guest services and a kids and a lot of that other standpoint. So I know that feels like an eternity away. It is five weeks away. So just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up on that. All right, well, uh, today we're continuing in this series called We Are Here, and we're beginning in the passage we just read. It's hard to even call it a passage. It was more a verse, right? It was a sentence in John chapter 15, verse 13. And, uh, you know, I, I've been thinking, my, my in-laws have been in town, my, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, they've been with us the last week and a half or so, and so I've been thinking about the first time I ever really spent kind of extended time with them was when Molly and I were dating, and I went to go to her house in Toledo, Ohio, and, you know, I'd met her family before, but this is the first time I'd, like, stayed there and really was spending time with them, and I'm an only child, she's the oldest of five, so only child, seven kids in their family, and I remember the first night... That, we, that I was there, we, we had dinner. They ordered pizza and they ordered a six pack of uh, soda. And uh, so I got through the little buffet line in the kitchen and I got some pizza and I grabbed a can of soda and I was walking to head out. Some of you from larger families already know where this is going. <laughs> and my mother, my now mother-in-law said, uh, what do you think you're doing? I said, uh, I think I'm, getting dinner. I don't know. She goes, you don't get your own can. You don't get your own can. This is a family of seven and you're eight. There's six cans. You don't get your own can. Well, I was an only child, right? In my world, like, well, of course you got your own can and probably another one. And, uh, and, and, and so it just didn't make sense to me. And I had not done any kind of thinking. I mean, I hadn't thought like, oh, yeah, there's only six. There's eight of us. Like, it just never occurred to me. Why? Because I was just used to thinking about me. Now, Molly and my in-laws would probably tell you, you're still pretty good at thinking about you. And I'm, I'm sure I am. Uh, but there's something in you and there's something in me that makes it really hard to think about anyone besides ourselves. 
we think naturally of ourselves, we look out for ourselves, we seek to protect ourselves, we seek to make sure that we are comfortable. There's something in you, there's something in me that just sort of looks out for ourselves. And this becomes a challenge when it comes to beginning to follow Jesus, because this actually threatens our closeness to Jesus and our ability to be used by Jesus, because the great commandment that Jesus gave was that we would love God with all our everything, and we'd love our neighbor as ourselves. You can't actually follow Jesus very closely if you only think about you. Here's some of how we've said it a lot of times before, is we've said the opposite of love is not hate, it's selfishness. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's selfishness. And so if we just keep thinking about ourselves, we're not going to be very close to Jesus. And we're not going to do very much for Jesus in the world. So that's some of what we're talking about today. As I said, this series, we are here, it's kind of a vision-oriented series. The first week, we kind of asked the question, where are we? If we were just to define present reality, where are we? We said, well, we're about to approach our 10th anniversary. We're about to move into a new campus next door. By the way, did you see the cross out there? That looks pretty good, don't it? Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It's funny, it was all short looking when it was laying down there, and then they put it up and it just got, it got stretched out. But uh, that property right next door, if you're new with us, we own that property, we're building on that, and we'll be moving into that in our 10th anniversary year. And we also said, we're here in this community where there's this uh, growing sense of, there's just so many new people, and a growing sense of hopelessness, a growing sense of discouragement and anxiety and depression, and a growing sense that the church really doesn't have a lot to say to that. So that's where we are. That's our present reality. We said, okay, if that's our present reality, what's our preferred future? What's our vision? What's our dream? Here we are 10 years into this church. If we fast forward another 10 years, what we'd like to be true. And what we said was we want to be the best friend that our community has. That's what we'd love to see happen. That's a big thing. That's a, that's a hard thing. That, that's not an easy thing to, to maybe have accomplished. But We feel like it's compelling. We would love for people in this community to know about Jesus' work through this church, even if they don't believe in Jesus. We would love it if people in this community went, you know what, I don't know if I agree with you guys. I don't know if I even like the stuff you believe, but I can't help but like what you do for this community. We want to be an alligator church. We talked about that a number of weeks ago. Alligators are these keystone species where you pull an alligator out of its habitat, the whole habitat is impacted negatively. We want to be an alligator church, a keystone church where people are blessed in this community regardless of what they believe and regardless of whether they're part of our church. Well, how do we get there? Well, what we said was we kind of are going to go through a process in this next year of having a replanting, a, a reimagining what it would look like to be a missionary people in this community, kind of replanting the church, if you will. And so it begins with asking as many of you as are willing to commit to joining our 2019 launch team by making the same five commitments that all the people when our church started made, and that's these five commitments. This commitment to come on Sunday into a small group, this commitment to go as a missionary to your circle of influence, to invite people, to experience the life of the church, to serve uh, consistently in the church or in the community, but have some sort of role consistent. People are counting on you to serve in some way and to give financially to support the mission. And so on December 9th, that's the last day of the series, we're going to ask you to commit to those five things. We'll actually have baskets up here in the front and we'll ask you to come forward and say, yes, I want to commit to those things. And if you do, then one of the things that we're going to have is uh, our anniversary Sunday, January 13th, will be a big volunteer fair. You'll be able to figure out, oh, here's a good place for me to serve. And we'll start training you over this next year to really think like a missionary in a fresh way. All right, so that, that's some of where we're going. 
And so what we looked at last week was to say, okay, we've got to make those commitments, but besides those commitments, how do we really become the best friend our community has? If we're going to be the best friend our community has, then we have to stay connected to the best friend we have, the best friend anyone could have, and that's Jesus. So Josh Watt preached last week. He said it was the most important sermon of the series. And he was right. He, it was, right? Because what we talked about was in John chapter 15, verse 5. Look at what it says there. Jesus there says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Notice Jesus does not say, apart from me, you can do quite a bit because you're really smart. He'd say, apart from me, you could do almost anything. I mean, just Google it. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we can't be the best friend our community has unless we abide in Jesus, unless we stay close to Jesus. Well, let me ask you this question. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? And the word means remain or stay. What does it mean to stay, to remain in Jesus. And I think the answer actually is going to surprise you. I want to show it to you here from John chapter 15. Because when you think, oh, I need to abide in Jesus, you probably think, I need to pray. I need to fast. I need to kind of beef up my spiritual disciplines. I need to just kind of take on this accelerated life of devotion. And that will help me abide in Jesus. Jesus actually answers the question differently. Look at this. If you have your Bible, look at John chapter 15 and look at verse 4. In verse 4, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. He uses this illustration. I'm a vine, you're the branch, just abide with me, stay close to me, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But he says, okay, abide in me, stay close to me, connect to me. Well, what does that mean? How do we abide? Well, then look at verse 10. Jesus in verse 10 then says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Okay, so get the, get the logic here. Verse 4, abide in me. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide. Okay, well, what are the commandments? Jesus just spells it right out. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. You get the formula? Abide in me by keeping my commandments. What's my commandment? Love one another. Get this. Get this. This is so key. This means you can live a life of private devotion. You could live a life of fasting and prayer and worship. You could live a life where you every day at a very rigorous time get up and spend meaningful, life-giving time investing in your relationship with God and still not abide in Jesus. Get this, I don't want to disparage prayer. I don't want to disparage getting up early at consistent times and investing in your, I, I absolutely want that. But get what Jesus is saying. If you don't love one another, you're not keeping my commandments and you're not abiding in me. This is why some of the most devout people you've met have not tasted very much like Jesus. Oh gosh, they're at church every week and they do a lot, but they just are grumpy and mean and judgmental. Anybody, don't, don't raise your hands. Anybody know anybody like that? 
Don't elbow the person next to you. Right? This is, this is, what does it mean to abide? It means to love. And even some people go, I love mamby-pamby, blah, 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 blah. Teach them about spiritual disciplines. Maybe you need to hear this. Because you can be as disciplined as can be, but if you don't love, you're not abiding in Jesus. And if you don't abide in Jesus, get the logic, you can do nothing. Nothing that's valuable in the kingdom of God. So this raises three questions for us then. What does it mean to love like Jesus? Because if Jesus, that's what Jesus says, love one another, verse 12, love one another as I have loved you. And then the verse that we just read, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friend. So what does it mean to love like Jesus? Second question we'll ask today is why don't we love like that? And third, how do we build those muscles? What does it mean to love like Jesus? Why don't we love like him? And how do we begin to build those muscles? That's what we're going to look at today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. God, we want to abide in Jesus. We want to experience the life of Jesus flowing through us so that we might bear fruit that pleases you and is satisfying to others around us. God, help us to love like you. Show us what that means and how to do it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we haven't unpacked a great deal of the context of John 15, but the context of John 15 is it's right in the middle of what scholars call the upper room discourse. It's this part of John that goes from John 13 to John 17, where Jesus is with his disciples over their last supper, and he is teaching them in 13 to 16, and then in chapter 17, he begins to pray on their behalf. And so that's where John 15 is. And so if you want to ask the question, what does it mean to love like Jesus? You have to actually go earlier in this whole section, earlier in this whole conversation that he's been having with them. Because when he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, I think everybody listening here would have thought of the same moment. And it was the moment that had happened maybe just 10 or 15 minutes earlier. It was a moment that they never thought they'd see. It was a moment that you'll see in just a moment is described in such specific, slow motion kind of detail that I think this moment made a permanent mark in the minds of these disciples. It's the moment we read about in John chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, just swipe back a few swipes till you get to John chapter 13. This is the beginning of this meal, and look at how this all begins. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was who would betray him, which is why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, maybe you've heard about this. This is not a very common custom in our world. But in these days, almost everybody wore sandals and all the roads were filled with dust and filled with animal droppings and just were dirty. And so what would be very often the case is when there was some sort of meal or when people would come over to your home, the the guests would enter and a slave would get down and would wash their feet. Part of it would just be to kind of contain the smell that you didn't want kind of drifting through your house. But a lot of it was just this act of service. Now, this was such a low act that, as I said, slaves were the ones that had to do it. And oftentimes, if there were Jewish slaves, they wouldn't even do it. The Gentile slaves had to do it. This is a low thing. And what's happened here is they have already gotten through dinner. It's already happened. And dinner's kind of wrapping up. And Jesus says... In his mind, nobody's washed the feet. I just wonder, as a leader, if there was part of Jesus that was like, oh, I thought I'd taught about this before. I just, are they ever going to get it? I don't think they're going to get it. I need to do something that they'll never forget. So he rises from supper. And he takes the position of a slave. You see how they react. Peter's going, no, 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 you can't do this. No, no, you're you're too good for that. No, 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 don't do that. Why? Because it was such a shocking thing. You see the slow motion nature of it in verse 4, right? You can see it. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. He took a towel. He tied it around his waist. He poured water. He began to wash. He wiped their feet, right? You see, this is like, oh my gosh, what is he doing? And in this story, we get what it means to love like Jesus. The first thing it means is it redefines the purpose of power. If you love like Jesus, you redefine the purpose of power. Look at what it says in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd, come back from, that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and acted like a slave. That's amazing. right? What John is saying is Jesus was conscious of something. What was he conscious of? He was conscious, I'm the most powerful person in this room. And I'm not just the most powerful person in this room. I'm the most powerful person. Do you see what it said? Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Knowing that God had said, you're in charge of everything. Armed with that knowledge, Jesus leaned back and said, when are you idiots going to wash my feet? No. Armed with the knowledge that he was the most powerful person in the universe... He put on a towel, and he became like the lowest person. 
Andy Stanley's a pastor in Atlanta. Some of you have heard of him. Some of you, most of you haven't. If you've heard of him, you might like him. You might not. I don't know. I don't really care. (laughs) But he was asked to give a private chapel type thing before the inauguration of Barack Obama. He said it was the most nerve-wracking thing I've ever done because I'm doing a church service for one person while everyone else listens in. And that person happens to be the President of the United States. And he was thinking, what should I, what should I teach? What should I do? And you know what passage he went to? John 13. And he asked the question, what do you do when it occurs to you that you're the most powerful person in the room? You leverage that power for the sake of others. That's what he tried to encourage President Obama in. Now, whether you like Andy Stanley or you don't, whether you like Barack Obama or you don't, you got to like Jesus. Because Jesus realized he was the most powerful person in the room, and he leveraged that power for the good of others. That's what it means to love like Jesus. Do you have some level of power? Do you have some level of voice? Do you have some level of clout? Do you have some level of resources? Do you have some level of influence? If you love like Jesus, you leverage that for the sake of others. Loving like Jesus also means taking a new position, this position of a servant. Right? I think this is why this felt like slow motion. You ever have these decisive moments in life where you're like, I just, everything slowed down and I remember exactly how it all went? That's what you see here. Right? Jesus takes this new position. He takes the position of a servant. He takes the position of a slave. Get this. Jesus does not just kind of continue mostly to be in his position of importance, but occasionally dabble in serving. He takes on a whole new way of thinking. Take a new position as a servant. Third, to love like Jesus means serving even those who don't deserve it. I wonder if you caught this detail as I read that story just a moment ago. Look at what it says in verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that he was in charge of everything, rose, did all that stuff, and washed all the disciples' feet. Did you catch that? That means Jesus washed Judas' feet. Judas, the one who already had it in his heart to betray him. Already had. But not just Judas. I mean, the rest of these guys are no shining stars. I mean, Peter's the one that's constantly talking back to Jesus. And Peter's the one who said, I'll never deny you. And then actually ends up denying him three times. All the rest of the disciples abandon him. So every single person that Jesus washes their feet is a failure, is a sinner, is a betrayer. So if you're going to love like Jesus, this means you serve even those who you don't think deserve it. You serve people younger than you. You serve people older than you. You serve people with fewer resources than you. You serve people with more resources. You go, oh, they don't deserve that. They don't, they're, they're like mean, rich people. You still serve them. You serve people of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different perspectives, different politics, different everything. You serve people that are different from you and especially people, if you want to love like Jesus, that you don't think really have much to offer you. It's one of my favorite things when I just sort of walk the halls on Sunday and I get to see you know, it's fun to see everybody serve, but I, but I especially love it when I get to see somebody who I know is like the vice president of something or other, and it's really long, and they're in there, you know, rocking a baby. 
They're in there, you know, I walk through the kitchen and they're, you know, wiping out the communion trays. I just think like, that's like Jesus. Loving like Jesus means, last, doing what we know to do. Look again at John 13, verse 17. If you know these things, Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. Let's say that all together. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Do them. A number of years ago, I was like, you know what? I love music. I, I love listening to music. I love, I, I love attending any kind of live music. You know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to learn guitar. And so I uh, actually borrowed a really nice guitar from, from a friend, and he, he let me have that guitar. And I signed up uh, for a guitar class that I then actually forgot about and didn't attend. And so I had another friend who played guitar. I said, hey, just show me some basic chords, and he showed me the chords. And so I, I've got all the instruction I need. I'm surrounded by people, by the way, since I work at a church where there's lots of worship leaders. I'm surrounded by people who play guitar. I had a wonderful guitar. And believe it or not, you know what? I still can't play guitar. You know why? Because I didn't do it. <laughs> Everyone said, you know what the key to this, the key to your fingers feeling right is you got to do it. You got to practice it. You got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it. I still can't play guitar because I didn't do it. Any of you have any exercise equipment in your house that doubles as a, <laughs> doubles as a clothes hanger? Doubles as a storage unit? Anybody have anything like that? What about this? Does anybody have anything in your house that if you knew you had to sell your house, you would go fix this? You'd go paint this? You'd go replace this? Jesus says, if you know these things, <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, by the way, you should know them because I've been with you guys the last three years, but no one got up to watch the feet, so clearly you don't. All right, this is my internal Jesus monologue. If you know these things, Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. It is not enough to know that love is the key to abiding in Jesus. It is not enough to know that it honors God and blesses people when we serve and when we give and when we love in this way. It doesn't do enough to know that. You've got to do it, Jesus says, if you want to experience his version of the blessed life. Now, this raises a question, because if we, if we all know this, I mean, we, we all know, yeah, it's better to give than receive, and... And yeah, you've had moments, haven't you, where you've served and you've done something, and especially you've served people who you knew couldn't repay you, and you thought, oh, that was so satisfying, that was so good, and I felt so alive when I did that. Right, you've had that? Then why don't we do it? Why don't we love like Jesus? Why don't we love like this? Well, I thought of five different reasons. The first one is it's unnatural and it's costly. I remember talking some years ago with a guy who was a Secret Service agent. He'd been a Secret Service agent actually under President Reagan, and he talked about how difficult it was to go through the training to be a Secret Service agent because what you're trained to do is something that's totally unnatural. Gunfire rings out, there's a threat. What everyone naturally does is they run away from it and they scatter. What a Secret Service person does is they move toward it. It's totally unnatural and it's totally costly because if you actually move toward it, you're more likely to get hurt yourself. 
In the same way, loving like Jesus is unnatural. We naturally think about ourselves. We naturally think about what's good for me. We naturally go, well, what's in it for me? We naturally ask, well, what am I going to get back from this? It's unnatural to say, well, I'm going to take on the low position. I'm going to take on the role no one's going to thank me for. Now, I just would love to know. John doesn't record it. I'd love to know if anybody here said, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for washing my feet. I mean, Peter clearly had a problem with this. But I wonder if anyone else was like, hey, thanks. He doesn't record it. And it doesn't seem like Jesus cared. It's, it's unnatural, it's costly, it's sacrificial. If you're, gonna, if you're gonna love with your money, if you're gonna love with your time, if you're gonna love with your emotional energy and your compassion, it's unnatural and it's costly, so we don't do it. Second reason we don't love like this, maybe, is that we've just never been taught. Maybe you're a follower of Christ who, yeah, you know, generally speaking, that you're supposed to love people. You know, generally speaking, you're supposed to have the heart of a servant. But, but you, no one's actually maybe ever connected the dots for you that you actually can't be close to Jesus and can't be mature as a follower of Jesus unless you love like Jesus. Maybe you never heard that. And so I'm sorry you've never heard that. And that excuse ends today. You now can't say that. You've now been taught. Right? But, but most Christians haven't. We think, oh, maturity is about what I know and how many books I've read and how much scripture I've memorized and all this kind of important stuff that's about my brain-on-a-stick faith. But real Christ-like faith loves. Here's a third reason, maybe. Maybe we think we deserve a break. Gosh, I, you know, I've done a lot of this. I've done this before. I've done this a million times. I talk to, uh, from time to time, folks who are seniors, who are empty nesters, and uh, I've talked to some people. My parents live in a 55-plus neighborhood, and every now and then I'll, you know, I've interacted with some folks in their neighborhood who go, oh, it's so great to be away from our kids and grandkids. And I think, Satan? <laughs> <laughs> Go, what? what? And they go, yeah, you know, I mean, we, we did all that. We, I raised my kids, and I, I shuttled them around to places, and, you know, now it's time to live for me. And I just thank God that my parents just bought a new minivan. They're in their late 60s, early 70s. What do they need a minivan for? They need it to shuttle around our kids. <laughs> Praise God for that. But some people have said, you know what? I've, I, I've served, yeah, I, I volunteered. I, you know, I did kids' ministry back, you know, 30 years ago. I, I'm kind of, I've, I've paid my dues. Look at what it says in verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus had loved these guys. Jesus had taught these guys. Jesus had sacrificed for these guys. Jesus had shaped these guys. And this might have been a time where you'd go, you know what, if you're Jesus, you know what, I, I've done enough. Like, this is the last meal of my life. I think I'm just going to kick back and enjoy it. But instead, he picks up the towel and he serves. 
Maybe we don't love because we go, ah, I deserve a break. Do you? Do you deserve a break from loving like Jesus? Do you deserve a break? Do you want a break from abiding in Jesus? Why would you? No. Do you want a long season of your life to be disconnected from the heart of God? No. 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 Fourth reason, why don't we love like this? Kind of the opposite. We think we don't have enough to offer. Maybe this is you. Maybe you go, I just don't know. I don't know enough. I haven't experienced enough. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough credibility. I, I have too much sin. I don't have enough sinlessness. I don't have enough experience. I, I don't have enough. I love this quote by Rick Warren from The Purpose Driven Life. He says this, if you're not involved in any service or ministry, what excuse have you been using? This is a great list. Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson was codependent. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair and all kinds of family problems. Elijah was suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was reluctant. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric, to say the least. Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. And Timothy was timid. That is quite a variety of misfits, but God used each one of them in his service. He will use you too if you stop making excuses. God wants to use you. He wants to use even your failures and your weaknesses and your shortcomings. Why? Because when you're weak, he's strong. When you're weak and you keep serving, when you're inexperienced, you say, I don't really know what to do and I need help and somebody trained me, but I'm going to move toward this. God's honored in that. Finally, why don't we love like this? Because we don't believe Jesus about the path to true life. We just don't believe him. Look at what Jesus says in John 12. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says this kind of thing over and over. If you want to save your life, lose it. Give it up. Sacrifice. Become a servant. Become a slave. Pour yourself out. That's the path to real life. But if you... Hold on to your comfort. Hold on to your perspective and your power and here's what I gotta do and here's how I gotta live for me. If you hold on to that, Jesus says, you'll lose it. This is just a few verses before he picks up the towel in John 13 and begins to serve like this. Listen, we just don't believe it. We don't believe that if we keep giving, if we keep pouring ourselves out, if we keep serving, we just don't think we'll get filled back up. And as a result, we hoard all of our energy and we hoard our money and we hoard our time and we slowly, if we do that for long enough, right, and to get this, I'm not talking about the wisdom of occasionally taking a break because of a certain season of life or because this happened or that happened. I'm talking about a long season of living for you because you go, oh, I got to protect all this. Here's what happens. You actually become this stagnant place of death. I've been to Israel. It's, it's a huge difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Sea of Galilee, it's called a sea, but they're both called seas. They're just lakes. And, and connecting them is the Jordan River. Now, what's fascinating is the Sea of Galilee is filled with life, filled with fish, filled with you know, all sorts of things growing. It's just this beautiful, beautiful place. The Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because everything in it is 
dead. There's not really actually anything in it except for a bunch of minerals. People said, oh, well, you can float in the Dead Sea. No, it's not that you can float. You have to float because it's so filled with salt and it's so filled with minerals. You get in and you just go, and you just float to the top. But there's nothing living in it. Do you know why? It's because the Sea of Galilee has water coming into it from the mountains and then water going out of it through the Jordan River. But the Dead Sea just collects the water because it's actually below sea level, and so there's no outflow. So it receives, and it receives, and it receives, but it never gives. And as a result, everything in it just stagnates and leads to death. It's the same in our Christian life. If we don't serve, if we don't give, if we don't use the things that God has given to us to bless others, we too will stagnate. Why? Because we will not be abiding in Jesus. And he's the source of life. So, last question then, how do we build these muscles? How do we build these muscles? How do you begin to be a person who naturally flinches toward seeing the need in the room and accommodating it, right? How do you become the person that sees, oh wait, there's eight of us, there's only six cans, I guess I don't get my own. How do you become that person? Who doesn't have to be told, hey, uh, what are you doing? How, how, how do you just become that? Here's what I think. You don't just become that. Just like you don't become anything. Any of you have any kids like I do who think they should just be great at everything the first time they do it? Am I the only one? You're like, uh, no, you kind of have to practice. You kind of have to build the muscles. You kind of have to build the strength. You have to build the habits. Listen, you will never spontaneously love and serve like Jesus if you don't have the patterns and the rhythms and the habits of training yourself to love and serve like Jesus. You just won't do that. I had a number of, of uh, you know, a month or so ago, Molly and our two oldest kids were in Juarez doing the house building trip with uh, many of you, uh, some of you were there. And um, I was home with our little kids and with my uh, brother and sister-in-law's baby. They had gone on a getaway to Sedona and said, oh, Luke will watch our one-year-old. And so, and so uh, we were there and I was like struggling. <laughs> I needed help. And so I called up a guy that's in, that's in our small group, that's in our RC, and I said, hey, Dusty, will you, will you come help me? And Dusty came over with a venti Americano, <laughs> and he just helped me wrangle and hold and play with those kids, just spontaneously, sure, I'll do it. He just changed, the whole environment of our house changed for that two hours that he was hanging out with us. Do you know why Dusty could do that? Because almost every week, you could find Dusty in the nursery at five o'clock after he comes to church in the morning and comes back Sunday night and holds and plays with toddlers. You go, oh, that's how he built those muscles. He could spontaneously serve. He could spontaneously bring life. He could spontaneously help someone like me who was just totally overwhelmed because he'd committed to serve on a regular basis in a faithful way to build those muscles, right? It's the same thing here. So here's what we want to ask you to do. We want to ask you to commit to serve and to give, to build these muscles. Not just because the church has needs and we need people to kind of fill slots, though that's true and will be even more true in our future building, but because this will help you build the muscles you need to serve. 
There's ways to serve if you can be at the church every week and you want to serve like that. There's ways to serve from your house. There's ways to serve occasionally. There's ways to serve uh, all the time. I mean, there's just lots of different things. If you want to kind of look at the options for that, just go to this website, gateway.redemptionaz.com slash serve. You can see just a number of opportunities that exist there to serve. If you're thinking, if you've been thinking about this commitment card that you know is coming December 9th, you go, I don't know what to do with that. I don't serve yet. Go to that website. Look at it. Maybe just make a mental note of it, and and you can fill out the card. We'll do a volunteer fair in January. We'll help you take all these steps. But commit to serve in some sort of way. Maybe it's not at our church. Maybe go, you know what? I actually am already involved in this nonprofit. I'm already doing this in this committed way. That's the only thing I'd ask you is just make it a commitment. Make it something you've got to do that someone's counting on you for. We've used the analogy forever in this church that in a large family, you always see something on everyone's refrigerator. You know what it is? Chores list. Because <laughs> what happens in a large family? What does everyone else say? Uh, someone else will do it. And so you put together a list. You go, I'm responsible for this. You can count on me for that. That's what we do in our church as well. Commit to serve. Commit to give. You see the website there to give. So many of you give so generously financially. Keep doing that. The only way you're going to be able to give big in spontaneous ways is if you've given big sacrificially over time in planned ways as well. The opposite of love isn't hate. It's selfishness. And my heart for for me, because I'm still that only child who grabs his own can of soda, and my, my heart for you is that we would become people who love like Jesus. And we don't drift there. We don't stumble our way into it. We become that as we commit to becoming like that. So will you join us? Will you be part of this? Will you continue to give? Will you continue to serve? Will you continue to build the muscles that will help you to love so that we can become the best friend our community has? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has washed us, that he has cleansed us, that he has served us, that God, nothing we've talked about today, no kind of loving like him makes us right with him, but that because we're already right with him, because we've trusted in him, now we have the new power to love like he does. So God, make us a heart, make us a church with your heart. Give us a church that is eager to serve, eager to give, eager to bless. God, thank you for so many people who already carry your name in such a faithful way. God, help that to continue. Would that be contagious? Would that spread so that the love of Christ could fill our hearts and our homes and this community? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.